Welcome back to Matinees on Main Street, the podcast about the history of the movies from the beginning. I've been spending a few episodes kind of wrapping up the moving picture situation at the end of the 19th century. Because the public suddenly discovered them in 1896, there hadn't yet been much time for the public to reflect upon its purpose or its past, or for the movie industry to develop into something meaningful. Still, a lot of various things happened, and the public was learning to accept this entertainment novelty. But two things did happen to disturb the organic growth of this very new industry. The first was Edison's legal attacks on his competition. This would strangle that early growth, even if a portion of the business was illegitimate. Once the new century began, Edison wouldn't be able to provide enough film to feed America's demand. And as always happens when American domestic industries can't provide what the public wants, Americans start shopping overseas. The second thing that would disturb the ripples of organic growth was the sudden outbreak of war between America and Spain. Unlike the dampening caused by Edison's attacks, the war would give purpose to the movies and reinvigorate interest in it. The war would provide a brand new crop of films that would be repeatedly played in vaudeville and in cities small and large. The war drew a line in the cultural sand, defining the older films of the very first years from the newer films that would arrive after the war, films that would have a greater sense of entertaining the public. The war also defined the separation of time that existed between the period when Edison's movie clips were the dominant films in America and the time when French films started to make inroads into our country. Now, I have to admit that I had originally hoped to make this story one episode. Generally, when this war is covered by film historians, it's good for several pages or a chapter, but only to discuss the films that were made. But the war helped revive interest in the movies in surprising ways, so the story of the war and these films are expanded to two episodes. I'm sorry if this goes longer than normal, but because of the war's importance to the immediate future of the movies, we should take the time to consider it. Why we got into this war is a bit of a puzzle, although that's the way that our involvements in wars usually happen. In the years before World War II, it was normal to assume that we fought the Spanish-American War to liberate the Cubans, but in the later decades of the 20th century, a different, darker story emerged. This one accused American newspaper publishers, such as William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, of tricking America into the war in order to sell newspapers. Again, each of these explanations provide a small part of a larger answer, but they don't explain the whole. There are two things to keep in mind when considering the war. The first is that Spain had been involving itself in Cuba almost since the day Columbus landed in the Caribbean. 
The other is that, in 1823, President James Monroe had declared that Europe should keep its hands off the Western Hemisphere. The Monroe Doctrine, as it was called, was considered by Europeans as being rather cheeky, as America really had no claim or ability to prevent Europe from involving itself in Central or South America. Still, the doctrine didn't place any restraints upon the European colonies that were already established there, and that included all of Latin America, which had been under the power of Spain since the early 1500s. It had been the Spanish who introduced slavery into the Americas, but while the history of slavery in America involved cotton, much of Latin America was dealing with a product that was much more lucrative and much more dangerous to harvest, sugar. States like Louisiana and South Carolina did dabble in growing sugarcane, but it was nothing compared to the major sugar industry that existed in the Caribbean, an industry that was sponsored by all three European colonial powers, Spain, France, and England. But by the 19th century, things were slowly changing. Prussia was processing beet sugar, as was France, so the dangerous and expensive cane sugar process was giving way to the more industrialized and cheaper beet sugar. Because of that, more and more of the cane sugar was heading to America. In 1807, England banned the slave trade. France, on the other hand, had to deal with the issue on a much more difficult level. During the time of the French Revolution, revolts broke out on the French Caribbean colony of Saint-Domingue, which is now Haiti and San Domingo. This was a complicated war, and it would end up becoming a bloodbath at times. At the same time, Spain, then under the thumb of Napoleon, was hoping that the troubles in Saint-Domingue would not spread to Cuba. The Spanish government was politically decrepit long before Napoleon shoved his brother onto the throne of Spain, and it continued to be decrepit after the Bonapartes were gone. The military had been a major power in the country since the days when it had fought long wars against the Muslims in Spain. It must have seemed like a gift from God when, just as they had driven the Muslims out of the country, shiploads of gold and silver from Central America started to arrive from the New World. Spain was suddenly wealthy due to the Native American cultures of Central America. Unfortunately, one of the things that this wealth paid for was a new round of Spanish wars in Europe this time so that they could battle the growing Protestant movement as well as expanding the power of the Habsburg dynasty throughout Europe. These reasons created many enemies among Europe's wealthiest countries, including the Dutch and the English, who were Protestant, and the French, who hated the Habsburgs. Spain continued to fight until it had expended its geological lottery winnings sometime in the 1600s. From then on, the Spanish government kind of hobbled along, taxing everyone in the empire as hard as they could, excepting the rich, and Cuba, one of Spain's jewel-of-the-crown colonies, struggled along with the mother country. Spain became more and more militarily and politically conservative, and Cuba did so along with it. Due to its corrupt governments, 
any efforts to improve the situation in Cuba was usually squashed by the Spanish government. What could be wrong in Cuba? Corruption, for starters, as well as heavy taxes, a rigid class system, and the continued presence of the Spanish military. The military was there to protect the Spanish Cubans in case the slaves considered some form of revolt. It was a classic case of the rich getting richer and the poor being either slaves or industrial peons. After the Napoleonic era, occasional revolts started to break out in Cuba, and the Spanish would send extra military help to put it down. Cuba was turning into the training ground for the Spanish military. These revolts were primarily hostile reactions to bad situations. America had always had its eye on Cuba, and Cuba had been very aware and wary of this for a long time. When America was simply a string of colonies turned into states along the Atlantic seaboard, Thomas Jefferson imagined its statehood. When James Monroe paternalistically spread the Monroe Doctrine over Spanish America, Cuba was already in the minds of some of America's major slaveholders. And in the 1850s, when the American South repeatedly promoted the idea of expanding our boundaries by adding Latin American countries, Cuba was definitely in their sights. And only a few years after the Civil War ended, the Cuba issue reemerged with the breakout of the Ten-Year War with Spain. The cause of the war was due to the financial hardships that Spain was facing in the 1860s. Squeezing both Spain and its overseas states with high taxes, the pressure was felt all the way throughout the system, especially by the poor. The war broke out on the eastern side of the island, and the Spanish were soon able to contain the fighting, keeping it in the jungles and away from the cities. Unfortunately, military and political incompetence turned the war into a ten-year battle of a papamole until a compromise was agreed upon. As usual, these concessions made by the Spanish government were never kept. In the 1890s, the war for Cuban independence broke out. Broke out is probably the wrong phrase as it was not so much a response to the latest indifferences from Spain, but a carefully planned set of steps and procedures that were organized to free Cuba from Spain's desperate grasp on the island. All of this was obsessively and tirelessly organized by José Martí, a Cuban-born Spanish intellectual. These organized steps that led to the war were eventually executed by Maximo Gómez, one of the former rebel leaders of the Ten-Year War, and Antonio Maceo, who, along with Marti, would make the war's leadership a trio. Surprisingly, much of this planning was kept secret despite the inclusion of a number of plantation owners, but by the time that war did break out, Spain had become vaguely aware of the plot, but did little to silence it. The wealthy conservatives in Spain had faith in their military. Unlike the Ten-Year War, the goal of the rebels was complete independence, and their basic strategy was not to be pinned down in the eastern jungles, but to spread their efforts throughout the island, and if possible, even connect with the cities. 
Their original plans proved to be quite successful, but this was aided further by the military incompetence of the Spanish army. A very large army, which may have been close to ten times as large as the rebel force, kept itself sequestered in the cities like Havana and Santiago, while the rebels burned down plantations, hoping to starve the Spanish off the island. Finally, the Spanish resorted to herding the people of the countryside into massive concentration camps. Because Cuba was so close to Florida, quite a number of Cuban Creoles were living in America. Creoles were Cuban children of white Spanish families living on the island. The ones living in America became the political contacts between the American press and the war on the island. They also created a political organization that cranked out a lot of PR for the independence movement, with some of it being questionable propaganda. At the same time, the New York newspapers, such as The World and The Evening Journal, were publishing independent Cuban propaganda and sending reporters to cover the war. This included visits to the concentration camps. It's probably fair to say that the war correspondents and their New York newspapers heavily favored the rebels. The news concerning the concentration camps and the bad conditions within them truly damaged Spain's reputation in America at that time, and the public was alarmed. Still, how much of the public's attitude was purely humanitarian and how much of it was political and geographical desire will probably never be known. A number of American businesses had property in Cuba, especially sugar and tobacco plantations, and they did their part to lobby Congress for war. At the time that the war news was unraveling upon the American public, America's entry into the war was still another two years away. Grover Cleveland was still president at this time, although his political career was limping to a close. Several years earlier, Cleveland had lost his re-election campaign to Benjamin Harrison. The political football in those days was over the tariff. The Democrats wanted to reduce the tariff and the Republicans wanted to increase it. It's the issue that brought Cleveland back into the White House. But when Cleveland returned, two new problems surfaced. The first was the Depression, which Cleveland would handle poorly, and the second which would arise in his last year of office, was the Cuban War Crisis. Cleveland did not want to get involved in the war, but with the public starting to become alarmed over the concentration camps and the destruction of American plantations on the island, the Republicans decided to use the crisis as their latest political weapon against the Democrats. The Republican Congress had discovered its military courage and became quite politically hysterical about demanding war with Spain over Cuba, particularly if it embarrassed President Grover Cleveland. With Cuba burning sugar plantations and imprisoning its people, and with certain American newspapers inflamed over the war, with Congress using the crisis to shame the president, and with the public being brought to a boil over Cuba, how much did any of this have to do with America's latest newspaper genius, William Randolph Hearst? Actually, nothing. In the beginning, his newspaper had contracted with writer Richard Harding Davis to report on the war. 
Davis had become America's dashing war correspondent, going from one world crisis to another. He had covered the Johnstown flood, and he would soon cover the Boer War in South Africa. He was paid quite well to report on what was happening in Cuba, but when he got there, he couldn't find anything. What was being called a war of independence was actually a war of attrition, as the rebels burned crops and the Spanish herded people in the camps. When the army sought out the rebels, they disappeared into the jungle, and when the soldiers returned home, the rebels returned to cutting and burning, or simply to appear somewhere else. Davis's pursuit of the story proved so frustrating that Hearst eventually moved the war off the front page of the Evening Journal. That is until things went sour in early 1898, when the battleship USS Maine exploded. That brings us to the first movies made of the war. There were a few actualities made of American battleships, but it's hard to tell whether they were prior to the destruction of the Maine or immediately after it. It seems that the first film company to record images of American warships was Mutoscope Biograph, and these included images of the USS Iowa and the USS Massachusetts. It's not known who filmed them, when it was filmed, or even where, but it was probably in New York Harbor. Since the outbreak of the war for Cuban independence, the American battleships had been restlessly moving from one point to another, depending upon the situation in Cuba. At the time, America was taking a wait-and-see attitude. Spain wanted us to stay out of the war, and the rebels were not keen to having us help them, at least not at the start. But Cuban Americans were lobbying for intervention, and some of the newspapers were attempting to rally Americans behind the Cuban cause in the name of higher sales. And as the war got more desperate, there was a growing concern over the Americans in Cuba. Some of them lived in the cities and others ran sugar plantations. As the American government tried to lay low while the various factions yelled for attention, the American battleships and cruisers were shuffled between Caribbean ports, New York City, Boston Harbor, the naval base at Newport News, Virginia, ports in Florida, and even the Dry Tortugas. Somewhere in this nest of harbors and naval bases, moving images of the USS Iowa and the USS Massachusetts were taken. This could have been at any time between late 1897 to early 1898. Depending on who you read, it could have been in New York or Newport News. If so, it could have been Dixon, who lived in New York, but had a family in Virginia. If it had been in Florida or the Keys, the cameraman may have been Fred Armitage. He had been spending time in New Orleans shooting actualities from Mutoscope in mid-1897. Outside of these few images, all the other naval films were certainly made after the main blew up. For a long time, battleships had been wooden. But with the development of the steamboat in the early 1800s, it was only time until steam became the predominant form of water transportation. With that, battleships went from wood to metal in the late 1800s. After the Civil War, 
America had decommissioned and even deconstructed its navy, but by the 1800s, a growing belief in an American navy developed in America, primarily due to the growing battleship war taking place between Britain and Germany. America started to build battleships at the beginning of the 1890s, but they were quickly considered obsolete and even poorly designed, as some of the ships were considered too underbuilt to support the power of their guns. All the American ships built at this time would be considered useless by World War I. The Maine can be considered one of those ships. It was underbuilt, and its sister ships would be decommissioned and relegated to target practice. Even in 1898, when it blew up, the USS Maine was an underrated ship. It was slightly smaller than the bigger ships and was sent to Key West, where it was stationed in case of more significant problems in Cuba. Finally, in late January, the rest of the North Atlantic fleet also appeared at Key West. It was at this time that someone, possibly Fred Armitage, shot footage of some of the fleet's ships. It was also at this time that the torpedo boat, the DuPont, showed up from New Orleans. Armitage did film the DuPont while it was docked at the Crescent City. In other words, a significant number of film clips of American naval ships were filmed sitting still in the dock with the camera standing on another dock not too far away. After the war broke out, these were the first films that were shown, and at least one critic complained about how boring it was to watch a series of minute-long clips of ships docked. The main was sent to Havana just days after the rest of the fleet arrived in Key West. Most countries' harbors were open to any other non-belligerent country's ships, and as Cuba was simply an extension of Spain, and as America was not at war with Spain, then it was logical to presume that the USS Maine could dock in Havana. After all, we were all just friends. But at the time, this move was more like suspecting that your friend was doing something shady, and everyone knew it. The Maine was there to protect Americans, leaving Spain to think that America didn't trust the Spanish to protect American citizens in Cuba. Well, America didn't trust them. Spain answered by sending the Vizcaya to dock in New York's harbor. Unfortunately, she wouldn't arrive until after the Maine blew up. Still, it proved to be another cinematic photo op. About a month after the Maine docked in Havana Harbor, the ship blew up. To this day, no one really knows what caused it, but reports gave details of the incident. Almost everyone was sleeping at the time. Most of the men were sleeping in the lower decks and died from smoke or fire or from the explosion. Of the small number who did get out, there were reports of fire coming from the fuel bunker and the ammo depot right next to it. Captain Sigsby heard an explosion that he described as a bursting, rending, and crashing sound or roar of immense volume, largely metallic in character. This was followed by a succession of heavy, ominous, metallic sounds, probably caused by the overturning of the central superstructure and by falling debris. 
The ship lurched and shook. The lights went out, and there was darkness and smoke. Two-thirds of the ship's men died in the fire that followed, while almost all of the officers who slept nearer the top of the ship survived. The captain and some of his officers believed that a mine sunk the ship, but usually they don't cause interior explosions. They explode outside the ship, creating a large hole. An interior fire within the fuel storage space could have caused it, as it seemed to set off the explosives stored quite near it. In the initial investigation, it was reported that the same thing had recently happened to the USS Cincinnati. Only the fire was contained. Most of the American newspapers respected the objectiveness of the investigation. They either stated that no cause was immediately known, or they repeated the Secretary of Navy's belief of an internal explosion in the coal bunker caused by the coal. Only a small number of rabid headlines repeated the claim that Spain was the cause of the explosion. While this explosion was quite a tragedy, for the moving pictures, this proved to be a godsend. Interest had been slowly dwindling in them, at least on the East Coast. The number of New York City vaudeville houses that were showing moving pictures had dwindled significantly. But on February 14, 1898, the night before the explosion, Proctor's Pleasure Palace restarted its interest in the movies. They had been running the Vitascope the previous fall, and now they took on the Biograph, a machine that was a big improvement over Edison's machine. Within a week of the explosion, the Mutoscope people had dug out their footage of the USS Massachusetts and relabeled it the USS Maine and started showing the film during Proctor's run. It was a major hit. The Edison Company witnessed the public's riled state in the days after the explosion and responded to the national situation by sending William Paley over to Havana to film what was left of the main. Since it was reported in some newspapers that the ship had been blown to pieces, it may have been soothing for some to know that the ship was still somewhat intact, except that it looked quite shriveled and charred and barely above the waterline. The knowledge that it was now the tomb for 266 of America's sailors gave the ship much more importance than it had as an acting part of the Navy. Paley's job would be groundbreaking. Like Jimmy Blackton and Albert Smith, Paley was British, having been born in the Lincolnshire area in East Britain in 1857. It looks as if his parents divorced and that his mother went to live with her own mother, but as a child it looks as if William and his mother's family moved to London. There, Paley was trained in art at the South Kensington Museum, now known as the Albert and Victoria Museum. It was at that time that he learned photography, which became his early occupation. He worked for a while at Scotland Yard in a photographic way, but traveled to New York in 1878. He set up a photographic studio there, but soon ended up working as a technical artist for the Automatic Photograph Company. There he developed some of the automatic machinery the company used to develop thousands of photographs a day. 
1892, he started to dabble in the movies. At least, that was the claim in a 1924 issue of American Cinematographer magazine. The claim of some historians that Paley didn't enter the movie business until around 1896 or 1897 seems much more likely. But before he got involved in moving images, he was involved in something much more questionable, demonstrating X-ray machines in vaudeville. X-rays had only been announced in late 1895. At the time, it was simply another way to consider how to look at things. If you could capture reality, first as still images, and later as moving images, why couldn't you see into things? People like Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla had suddenly become interested in x-rays, right after William Rentgen's announcement. What Paley demonstrated was a machine that looked inside of things using x-ray waves, and he would hold whatever object he was to scan in his hand up to the x-ray machine. These images weren't reproduced on negatives as doctors do now, but were viewed live by a machine known as a fluoroscope. Night after night, the fingers of his left hand were exposed to the radiation of the x-rays, and soon his fingers started to get red and sore. They itched. Little tiny water boils appeared under his skin, with some of them filling with blood. The next week, the skin on his fingers started to peel. Obviously, we now know this as radiation poisoning, but they didn't know that then. I suppose it wouldn't seem strange to us to know that the man who previously did this job was experiencing the same problem. But almost nothing was known about the power of x-rays, yet we were perfectly willing to sell machines that projected these rays as if they were a new kind of camera. The use of these machines could cause harm to our bodies, and yet people were perfectly willing to experiment with them. It wasn't long before Paley's fingernails on his left hand fell off. For a time, he switched to his right hand, and the same thing started to happen there. Towards the end of his run as an X-ray demonstrator, he started to have the public hold whatever items they wanted X-rayed. Soon after, he started to develop his calitechnoscope projector. That would be Paley's introduction into the world of exhibiting movies. He worked on the Eden Musée Passion Play project, and it was through the Eden Musée's relationship with McGuire and Bacchus that Paley got a job with Edison. At the time of the main explosion, Mutoscope Biograph was very interested in following up the successful deceit they had pulled off by creating a USS Maine movie from the USS Massachusetts film and sent two of their cameramen to Cuba to capture images of the Maine as it sat in its tragic state. Their names were William Bitzer and Arthur Marvin. While Mutoscope was officially a combine of the talents of Laurie Dixon, who had worked with Edison, and Herman Kasler, who had worked at Edison's Schenectady plant, there was also Harry Marvin and Elias Koopman. Marvin and Kasler had worked on a camera project outside of the Edison company. It was for a detective camera, an idea that was on vogue in those days. Dixon gave them a little advice on the project, and the man who was going to market it was Koopman, through his magic introduction company, 
Now, Arthur Marvin was Henry Marvin's brother, and Bitzer had worked at the Magic Company. Both men would still be cameramen when D.W. Griffith would revolutionize the look of the movies. Marvin would work for him on occasion, but it would be Bitzer's more ambitious drive that would help make Griffith the industry's first genius. And it would be Bitzer who would be canonized as the movie's first important cameraman. Bitzer was from Massachusetts. He was christened Johann Gottlieb Wilhelm Bitzer by his deeply German parents. His father was a blacksmith, but his brother, John, became a photographer. While William Bitzer apprenticed to be a silversmith, he decided to train as an electrician in New York City. It was through this training, as well as his second-hand knowledge of photography, that brought him to the Magic Introduction Company. By 1898, he and Arthur were making mutoscope films, but it would be another decade before D.W. Griffith was promoted as the company's new film director. So, Paley, as well as Bitzer and Marvin, headed to Florida in order to be shipped over to Cuba. Biograph was paying for Bitzer and Marvin's trip, and Edison was springing for Paley's journey. At the same time, money was coming from William Randolph Hearst to help fund both projects. It would be his yacht that would carry Bitzer and Marvin to Cuba, and it would be the New York Journal's yacht that would take William Paley over. At this time, everything was in a kind of an electrified limbo, except for the war-mongering newspapers like the Journal and Hearst's Evening World, as well as a number of war-mongering congressmen. Almost everyone else, including the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt, were rather on pins and needles. No one seemed to want war, and yet everyone was excited for it. As far as the United States government was concerned, the only thing of importance was the outcome of the inquiry into the destruction of the USS Maine. As far as most of the investigators were concerned, the most likely scenario was that something caused the fuel bunker to catch fire, and that set the armaments on fire, thereby blowing up the ship. But a number of the surviving officers believed something external caused the ship to blow and that was backed up by the unexplainable inward denting of the hull bottom. Spain honestly said it had nothing to do with it, and many Americans kind of thought so too, but that dent was impossible to explain away, and in the end the inquiry board blamed the explosion on an external object, meaning a mine or a torpedo. At the same time, Congress approved a $50 million budget to prepare for war. Spain was absolutely stunned that America could finance that much for a war without borrowing, but it forced the country into its own sense of military madness, and the war now seemed inevitable. William Paley arrived in Key West in time to film the short Burial of the Main Victims. Although technically this was not a burial, just a funerary parade. The Spanish had even retrieved the bodies of the dead since the explosion, and every so often they held a somber parade to escort the bodies to the American ships. 
From there, they were transported to Key West and would later be buried at Arlington National Cemetery. What Paley recorded was simply the American funerary procession. But for Americans so far removed from the event, this was truly the first time they had witnessed the moving images of a national tragedy. What must have made an even deeper impression was the footage of the USS Maine. That film was also made by Paley for Edison, and these films had to have made a big impact on the attitudes of Americans during the build-up to the war. Both Paley and Bitzer and Marvin recorded images at Key West. This included films of the sailors playing games, as well as shots of the naval ships in port. Paley filmed one called War Correspondence, in which close to a dozen newspaper reporters run to the telegraph office to be the first to file their story. It seems that Bitzer and Marvin also made a film about divers exploring the wreck in order to retrieve bodies. The film is mentioned in some film history books, but I know little about it. Instead, there is a Georges Méliès version of the story. I don't know how close his film follows the Mutoscope film, but he went to the trouble of building a set that looks like the part of the hull where the interior explosion took place. The clarity of the image, the lack of carbon dioxide bubbles being emitted from the suits, and the obvious artificiality of the lifeless dummies being extracted from the ship make this look recreated. But you really have to marvel at Melies's set production and his skill at stagecraft, as this film proves he was much more than just a man who made fantasy stage sets. Obviously, a film like this was played in Europe and possibly appeared in America, too. The last stages of America's indecision about entering into a war with Spain seemed to play itself out regardless of what people felt. President McKinley was of two minds. One was he felt he should not go to war unless all other options failed. But he also knew that we had to be prepared just in case we did. In his first State of the Union address, he talked of a coming war but later backpedaled on it. As for the Republicans and Democrats, as usual, it was less about war than it was about the hypocrisy of party position, and both sides had changed places. In 1895, the Republicans were rabidly pro-war, simply to embarrass the Democratic president, while the Democrats sided with President Cleveland's cautiousness. Now, the shoes were on the other feet, with Republican President McKinley being cautious, as were most Republicans, and the Democrats were now the rabid warmongers. But the Democrats and the more hawkish of the Republicans pushed for war. An ultimatum was passed by Congress that demanded that either Spain pull out of Cuba for failing to fix the situation, or there would be war. McKinley signed the ultimatum. This created a chain of events as the Spanish ambassador left the States for Canada and the Spanish government refused to physically accept a copy of the ultimatum. That meant war. On the next episode, we'll talk about the war itself and the films that were made about it. 
Thanks for listening and take care.